and putting the demons of blindness behind me with every step towards the pole, it offered me a long-lasting sense of contentment. As it turned out, I would need that in reserve because one year after my return, in arguably the safest place on earth, a bedroom at my friend's house, I fell from a second-story window onto the concrete below. And I don't know how it happened, but I suspect I got up to go to the bathroom. And as a blind person, I used to run my hand along the wall to find my way. That night, my hand found an open space where the closed window should have been, and I cartwheeled out. My friends who found me thought I was dead. The doctors in intensive care suspected I was going to die. And when I realized what was happening, I wondered whether dying might have been the best outcome. I'd fractured my skull. I had three bleeds on my brain, a possible torn aorta, and a spine broken in two places, no feeling or movement below my waist. All of that added to the existing blindness. And as I lay in intensive care, facing the prospect of being blind and paralyzed, I was trying to make sense of what was going on. Flat on my back, high on morphine, in the middle of the night I reached for my phone to write a blog titled Optimist Realist or something else. And it drew on the experiences of Admiral Stockdale, a POW at the height of the Vietnam War. He was incarcerated and tortured for over eight years. He didn't know if or when he might get out. And his circumstances were bleak, but he survived. The ones who didn't survive were the optimists, because they said, we'll be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then it would be Christmas again. And when they didn't get out, the optimists became disappointed, demoralized, and many of them died in their cells. Admiral Stockdale was a realist. He was inspired by the Stoic philosophers, and he managed to confront the brutal facts of his current circumstances while maintaining a faith that he would prevail in the end. And as I wrote the blog, I was trying to apply his thinking as a realist to my increasingly bleak circumstances. Hi, it's Anna D here. I'm founder and curator of InspireFest. Welcome to Real Humans. This year, we wanted to do something a little unexpected. So we set up a booth backstage at InspireFest. All we had in that booth was a microphone and a series of cards that could be turned over to reveal a question. After they gave their talk and left the main stage, our speakers went into the booth, chose questions at random, and they ended up sharing lots of interesting stories and ideas with us. We wanted to create something that would give you a better idea of the human side of our speakers, rather than just the technology, science and innovations that they talk about on stage. So we really hope you enjoy the results. It was something very new for us and a place that is not afraid to try new things is the Digital Hub, our supporters for the podcast series. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City in Ireland. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. 
You can visit thedigitalhub.com to find out more. Now let's run this experiment. So because Mark's blind, I'm going to, to read these questions. Mark, there's three that we have to answer all of these and then we can pick okay. from, the other, from the other pile. So the first one, why do you do what you do? Hmm. I've done a lot of work on this uh, based on reading Simon Sinek's book. So I do what I do because I want to help people build resilience and work with other people so that they can achieve more than they thought possible. That's why I get out of bed. That happens to be trying to find a cure for paralysis right now. Ooh. I'll ask you the same question. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Well, everything I do is based on my belief in fairness and equality and the ideal of justice. So in my work as a human rights lawyer, that's probably more obvious, but I try to use the court system to achieve justice for those who wouldn't normally have access to it um, and to try and reimagine what that means. And my public policy work and now working with artists and on other platforms to think about culture and how that creates injustices and how we might be able to change that. And in my work with you, Mark, um, I, why do I do what I do? Well, it probably started when you broke your back and my first aim was to help you as much as possible to recover and work towards the cure for paralysis. But then that became really exciting in and of itself. And I think I largely do that now because Solving complex problems is tricky and naughty and sticky, but very, very exciting. Mm. Yep. Next question. Next question. Tell me who you are and what you do. Oh, we might have done these in the wrong order. <laughs> Tell me who you are and what you do. Well, I think, I think what I... See, this is interesting because it's... Do you want to start with your name, who you are? No. Um, I think I think this this is interesting. I think, in fact, why you do what you do is is the right way to do it. Because why you do what you do is more important than what you do, not what you do driving why you do it. So I am Mark Pollock, and I speak to businesses all over the world about. Understanding that sometimes we choose our challenge, challenges, sometimes they choose us and what we decide to do about it is what counts. So I'm a, a public professional speaker. I organize a running event that happens in 50 cities around the world, 5 and 10k running events, 25,000 people, 50 cities every November called Run in the Dark, runinthedark.org. 
and my speaking and running helps to fund the work that I do to find and connect people around the world to hopefully cure paralysis in our lifetime. So I do, do three things, speaking, running events and uh, trying to cure paralysis. Hmm. What do you do? <coughs> What's your name and what do you do? <laughs> My name is Simon George. I'm a human rights lawyer. I work predominantly in domestic and family violence. In, I've done qualitative research, public policy work, and I practice as a solicitor in Ireland in this area. I'm also a commercial litigator and Mark's thought partner uh, and co-collaborator in trying to solve the complex problem of a cure for paralysis. The third one is, what do you wish you'd known when you were starting out? What do oh, I, I know that I know the answer to this for me because it's a recent revelation. I I have a background in sport and competition, and a clear way of thinking as a sportsman: set a goal, work out what the plan is, put the training program together, get the right group of people around, train hard enough. There's a kind of self-selection in rowing or in an adventure racing team or whatever so set the goal there's a time there's a place there's a target there's a plan there's a team some will drop out some will go back in and that's the way it works and and while I still think that competition is critical the competitor mindset is critical how that applies to collaboration is becoming much much more interesting to me and I think in fact in the work that I now do, I think negotiation, the skill of negotiation, convening and uh, facilitating all of the brilliant competitors right across the scientific life cycle from the scientists to the spin-out companies to the investors to the foundations to the parents of children who are paralysed and the paralysed people themselves. The key contribution that I think we can make is in providing a negotiation service to get all these brilliant pe- brilliant competitors ultimately to collaborate so i think i think in answer to the question i think if i knew competition and collaboration are inextricably inextricably linked uh, i think i would have concentrated on reading fbi negotiation books a lot sooner <laughs> So what did I wish I'd known when I was starting out? Goodness, uh, that's quite a that's that's quite a long list. And in fact, I try not to dwell on that question at all because it's impossible to go back and to do that. And I think then what happens is you meet people who are younger and you want to feed them with that advice so they don't have to suffer through the the difficult years when 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 you don't know but i suppose some of some of my big ones are that my creative ability so through my training as a lawyer my creative ability was always um undervalued or something that needed to be removed from the skill set in a world that seemed to um um prioritize <clears throat> logic and sort of mathematical thinking when in fact 
law and justice is about a narrative and about storytelling and the ability to do that and do it well is the thing that is incredibly useful alongside all of those other skills. So I wish I'd, I'd known that and valued that sooner because that's been really helpful um, getting to that point. Um, I wish I'd known about sort of unconscious bias and how we internalise the things that our culture says about us, whether um, it's about disability or gender or um, uh, race and place in, in society. I wish I had known that. That also has been um, the remover of the veil in front of my eyes is understanding that. So I wish I'd, I'd known that sooner. Um, this is one from the uh, any of these pile of questions, Mark. Okay. What was the last time you failed and how did you respond? I've, I have failed in a string of scientific projects. Um, we started out trying, trying to just work with people on a one-on-one one -on -one basis and I put together, or I, I was a, I was a subject in uh, a combination study of ro robotic exoskeleton walking combined with electrical stimulation that uh, Simon and I put together in UCLA in Los Angeles. We then replicated that back in Dublin and I wanted to scale it up into a multi-subject trial and I didn't realise that in fact when you move from a one-person study to a multi-subject trial it requires a whole lot of compliance and data. Uh, issues and, and lots of approvals and therefore funding that we simply didn't have and in fact the project the, the project didn't didn't get started uh, so we failed at that but in fact by going through the exercise it informed me that doing a multi-subject study of that kind in the way that we were trying to do it wouldn't have in fact moved the field of research forward in any particular way so it really highlighted that I shouldn't be doing those kind of projects in fact there are much better people around the world who are doing those projects and we uh, the response has been to go back to a collaborative mindset as opposed to an old an old way of thinking that in fact Ireland as a country has to own all of the research or we have to bring all of it in at a national level which is a sort of competitive mindset that we've got to do it for Ireland. In fact, we've got to do it for all of the people around the world who are paralysed and what is the best way of getting to a cure for paralysis. It's working with the best people around the world, helping them to collaborate better and being fiercely collaborative as opposed to um, unnecessarily competitive. So my response was just to think a bit harder about what's effective, not just what I happen to be doing. Cool. Do you want to do the same question no, or a different I, I'm one? No, I'm going to ask a different, I'm going to yeah, pick yeah, up a different yeah. one and actually it's sort of, this is interesting because I dreamt about this last night. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about a time you used data or evidence to make a decision. Um, I met this amazing woman, Mark and I met her yesterday, called Mona Chalabi. She um, is a data um, journalist. journalist, a data journalist. Mm -hmm. She creates these amazing illustrations from statistics that make you think differently about the statistics um, and the accuracy of them and what they actually mean. And it's really, uh, they're really powerful. Have a look at her work. But she and I were talking about 
my human rights work and she's really interested in looking at data around that. And I asked her this question, the international UN data uh, is that one in three women will experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. And I asked her, can you extrapolate from that who is committing these acts of violence? And do you think that that being the statistic is what colours the decisions that come from that piece of data? And she said yes, and we had this, this um, fantastic conversation about it, but I think this is the problem with the, even the language of the violence against women movement. Who, who, is, who is doing this violence? And we are treating the symptom. So in the incredible progress the domestic violence movement has made, and it is incredible, we have a situation now where women are able to leave places where they're abused and, and violated and they go to refuge, which are essentially prisons, which lock out the world. Um, and we don't solve the problem in that way. So that piece of data has, and thinking about how it affects the decision making around that, just exploded my brain yesterday. And so I had these um, fantastic dreams about it last night. And now I've got to find Mona and finish that conversation because she has this skill set and knowledge and thinking that, 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 um, um, that I don't have. And to try and collaborate with her on how we can reframe this and re redraw it for people. Um, what's the novel, poem, play or song that's had the most impact on you? Uh, it is either If by Rudyard Kipling, which Simon put onto an iPod that I was able to access prior to going to the South Pole for 43 days, or Antarctica for 43 days on the race to the South Pole, and then listening to the poem and learning it in my tent when we were in a whiteout, I, I was able to use different lines in that poem um, to get me through particularly hard parts in the middle of the expedition. And then when I broke my back and I was in hospital, um, I'd forgotten what I'd learned and Simon was able to read different parts of the, of the poem to me. And it's amazing how set against different backdrops lines within that poem um, resonated. I also find that the lyrics from some Baz Luhrmann's Sunscreen, which I know comes from someone else, but that song from about 1999 or 2000, there is a line for every situation in that particular song. And then of course the other, the other thing which I, well it's not a course, I was actually talking to myself there, but uh, Specifically, I talk about uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and the line within that by Nietzsche, he who has a why to live can bear with almost anyhow, and we'll be talking about that uh, in our session in a little while at Inspire Fest. So those are those, uh, Roger Kipling F, Baz Luhrmann's Sunscreen and Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think I went for three, not just one. <laughs> and a little sneaky quote by Nietzsche there as well. <laughs> um, goodness. Are you going for random selection or picking one out you like? Well, this is a really clever system for a podcast because um, 
when I, I've been cheating and looking at the questions and now it's, it, I find it too hard to answer. Will you just put your hand out and pick up potluck? Yeah, I'll pick one for okay. you. Okay. There's the stack. I, uh, I'll go for that one. See, cheating is not good. Ooh, what's the last thing you really geeked out about? Oh, you've, oh. Got a bit, you, you've got a bit of geek in you. There's no, <laughs> doubt, there's no doubt there is a geek within. I am I am very excited and enthusiastic. And I love technology and I love science and I love, um, I love a lot of things. I actually was worried a couple of weeks ago that um, I had the thought, what if I lose my enthusiasm? I thought about what might be frightening for me and that would be losing my enthusiasm you know when you meet people who are sort of apathetic or cynical or, or or jaded and I thought god that would be very frightening I suppose I mean it's on a daily basis uh, yesterday uh, meeting Mona Chalabi and seeing what she's doing with quantitative data to try and illustrate it in a way that um, is affects how people think about data just completely set the neurons off in my head and excited me hugely. But maybe the story I'll tell about this is when we first met Dr. Reggie Edgerton, who we'll talk about in our InspireFest talk. We uh, were at a meeting in, in New York about the cure for paralysis and how foundations could work with the scientists to do that. And we all went for dinner afterwards. And I was sitting opposite Reggie and beside Susie Harkema, who has worked with him on this first really meaningful therapy for paralysed people and I sat down I was thinking play it cool play it cool don't tell them you've watched every video they've ever made and read all their science journal articles even though you're not a neuroscientist and then Mark betrayed me and leaned across and said to Reggie she is more excited about meeting you than a 17 year old is excited about meeting Justin Bieber and Reggie blushed and then I told him about all of his articles I'd read, not claiming to have understand, understood uh, even half of it, but enough for us to be able to want to meet him and want to work with him and figure out how we could make uh, this incredible community, but one that's spread across the world, that have an interest in curing paralysis to get them to work together. So that was probably my uh, biggest public geek out. Yeah, so that's it. I don't know how to sign off on a, on a thing no, like this. I think we just, I know. I think we just exit. Right. <laughs> I'm tidying the cards. That was recorded at our fifth birthday of InspireFest in Dublin. We'll be back next year with a new and improved event on May 21st and 22nd. Tickets are still available and we wanted to offer a little discount code to our listeners. So simply go to InspireFest.com, click on buy tickets and enter the promo code HUMANS2020. That's a promo code of HUMANS2020. Thanks to all our speakers who took part in Real Humans and to our ACE team of producers at Bureau. For more about Bureau, you can go to akabureau.com. Thanks for listening.